Welcome to Syria Alternative Dialogues, a podcast that provides a platform for knowledge production and evidence-based dialogues about domestic and transitional political, economic, and social challenges in Syria's protracted conflict, produced by the Syrian Center for Policy Research in partnership with the Arab Studies Institute and Security in Context. Hello everyone, welcome back to our discussion with Omar Dahi, Professor of Economics in Hampshire College and the Director of Security in Context. Based on our last discussion, we have a very rich discussion about the securitization framework that you worked on in the Global South and in Syria. We want to go through more the dynamics of conflict inside Syria from regional perspective and from local dynamics as well. So in this perspective, how do you see the shift and transformation happened from social movement that aimed to freedom, social justice, new good governance, new democracy toward an catastrophic armed conflict that destroy the foundation of the economy and the society? I think what we need to start off with is thinking about what that moment represented of the demonstrations in Syria in particular. And I know, of course, there's the regional aspect of it. So I'm going to try my best to focus on Syria, although knowing that there's a regional dimension and it played out differently in different countries. But to me, one of the biggest problems of the Syrian government or one of its biggest historical crimes, let's put it this way, before 2011 was the killing of politics, killing of political life in the country. Of course, this is in addition to other issues about authoritarian governance and human rights repression and arrests and torture and disappearances. But among the biggest problems on the structure of Syrian society was the killing of politics and the idea that Syrian individual, Syrian society is capable of organizing itself and advancing its own interests. And I think the reason the social movement was miraculous for so many Syrians, such that even today, Some of them are really reminiscent about these first few months of the uprising and hold on to it, even though we're past that movement, is because it represented the possibility for resuming politics in the country, for actually having political life in the country, where people can initiate discussions and debates, where people can actually hold sessions and affirm their ideas and opinions and interact with people from other regions in the country and find out, oh, I'm in Damascus, but I actually am concerned about what's happening in Aleppo or in Deir ez-Zor or in somewhere else. And you saw that in the demonstrations and in the slogans and in the almost daily organizing sessions that happened throughout the country. And I think that then provided the possibility for a national movement to develop that can create an alternative, that can create alternative social, economic, cultural policies that can respond to neoliberalism, that can respond to the entrenchment of the elites in power and corruption issues, that can respond to the long-term decline in agriculture due to neglect and marginalization, and so on and so forth. That was the start. I think the uprising was the start, not the end point. And even the demands there that were put forward by the social movement or should have been thought of as the starting point towards a long-term struggle. And I think today we're at that same point there where we need to think about that this is a struggle and a long-term struggle rather than a short-term demand that can be met through a specific policy implementation or change in this person or that person, even though some of those may be important, but those are the, should be seen as part of this broader framework of presenting a social alternative that can capture the majority of the Syrian people and can provide them with a hopeful vision for the future. How do you see that? What you said about the killing the politics or what we called it the institutional suffocation of the society. How do you think this affect 
this kind of reduced form of change? Is this because of the lack of experience of the political participation or because of the international experience in Libya and Iraq, which give some signals that we can rebuild the state or re-change the whole institutions by external factors or by external power? That's a very good and very complicated question. And I think something that all of us have thought a lot about, but is difficult to answer, but I'll try my best to think about some of its elements. One element was that there was no legacy in the collective memory of Syrians of the state dealing with the society as equals, or as we say in, in Arabic, in nid la nid. It was more top down. It was more, you do what I tell you, and you either have to accept it, or you're exiled, or worse, or you just keep your mouth shut. So there was a often hidden or not so hidden violence in the relationship between the state and society. There was always the threat of violence that marked this relationship. So when you have a legacy where there is no history of, for example, independent labor movements making a demand on the government and the government negotiating with it and either accepting it or not accepting it or accepting it partially or teachers going on strike to demand higher wages, there is no legacy of that. And I think that played a very important part because in countries, I think, where we did see a less violent trajectory, you have a history to some extent of independent social movements where people knew that there is a possibility in bargaining with the state. In Syria, it's very hard for people to do that. So the deck was stacked against a non-militarized solution from the beginning. That's why Syrians needed to be very careful with that because already many people thought, what is the possibility here? What is the hope here? There's no hope because this is the only way the government knows. And the people who argued otherwise did not have much ammunition to say, no, actually, the government has alternatives. Look at in 1995 when they did. No, there is no history you can point to, right? So that's one thing. Then you have the legacy of international intervention, including Libya and Iraq, where the idea was that if you raise the demands high enough, you will have the West come and rescue you through militarized intervention. And that created a sort of short-termism where basically all you needed to do is wait a few months and either the regime is going to collapse or there might be some sort of agency from outside. It denied the agency of the social movements. And I think many people pointed to that issue, which is that the social movement denied its own agency by saying there is no hope, by saying all the reforms are nonsense. Maybe they were, maybe they weren't. But the reality is, rather than seeing this as a long-term struggle, there was a short-termism that set hold. And of course, we can't forget that the regime itself reacted very much in a way that the only thing that mattered is to suppress everything and perhaps later on you'll reform rather than actually think this is a chance for long-term engagement in a new way. The external intervention, of course, shaped the part of the discussion, but also the regional interventions. How can you see also this regional intervention shaped this kind of reduced form of transformation. How, for example, the Iranian Gulf countries, the Turkish interventions, invest in more identity politics rather than social cohesion, support militarization compared to have more negotiation or open the discussion within the Syrian society. How do you see these regional factors shift the social movement toward more conflict economy and armed conflict? Well, we spoke in the previous episode about yeah. the regional climate and about the zero-sum game that had developed between Iran, for example, on the one hand, and Saudi Arabia and other Gulf countries, on the other hand, and seeing 
basically each other's security as a zero-sum game. So many different types of regional responses played out. One of them was that, where Syria became the arena to settle regional scores and to bleed the other, quote-unquote. And so you created a fire pit. You know, we will fight each other directly in Syria. That's the proxy war aspect of the equation. But more importantly, going back to what I said at the beginning of the episode, is that there's a regional dimension to this, which is that all authoritarian powers in the region saw their threat, uh, their rule threatened by democratic alternatives. And that's why, for me, one of the biggest and most important things was to suppress democracy in Egypt. I think the failure of democracy in Egypt is something that the entire region paid the price for. Because Spill if you over. had the most important, biggest Arab country become more democratic, let's say, to think of this as an aspiration rather than a fully formed, you know, more respectful of civil rights, more respectful of human rights, a state that tolerates independent social movements that can become actors and make demands on Israel or make demands on the U.S. and support Palestinians or Syrians or other countries uh, through grassroots initiative that had to be destroyed, that had to be killed. And as much as I am concerned about Syria, to me, the failure of Egypt had a much bigger regional spillover, and, and we feel its effects today. And we can talk more about that. And similarly with the Gulf countries, there was the uprising in Bahrain, which is perhaps by percentage of the population was the largest social movement in the region in terms of a third of the population in the streets, or maybe even more than that. I forget the numbers. Yemen as well. Which, uh, so there was an attempt to both advance zero-sum militarized foreign policy objectives, as well as to reform the authoritarian equilibrium that had existed, where you're both trying to advance an aggressive foreign policy, but at the same time, you're worried about your personal rule, and you need to suppress these alternatives. So, of course, why would they? Neither Turkey nor the, which was becoming increasingly authoritarian under Erdogan already, and the other countries had an interest in providing a space for these alternatives. The only alternative was militarism, investment in weapons, facilitating fighters, facilitating acquisition of ammunition, and so on. And the other part of that, which is then the humanitarian aspect of it, which created part of this dynamic of the conflict economy, which we talk about in the conflict economies paper. But that was the initial sort of response which exacerbated the militarism of the conflict rather than invested in providing the opportunity for the alternative to emerge. How the transformation happened in terms of the institutions that governed the economy and the human capital, how these resources, tangible and intangible resources, shifted between 2011 and 2013? How do you see the new economy shaped during this kind of transformation? So there are many elements to that that we try to explore together. And I'm also interested in how you see the dynamics of this as well. But I think one aspect of what happened in Syria was that militarization destroying the real economy. There was a, a vast destruction and reduction in the real economic productive sector through the mere fact that there were battles and destruction of civilian housing, destruction of uh, factories, well, the destruction of infrastructure, which also led to the mass displacement of people. So at the, that economic collapse led to increased dependence, led to increased poverty, led to increased informality, the rise of informal sector to capture the majority of the Syrian social scene in terms of the economic levels of, of production. So that was then going to be further having an impact. So that's one aspect mm -hmm. of this. The other aspect of it is the shifting of resources 
almost entirely towards militarism, shifting them from human development, the Syrian state slashing its development budget and shifting its resources to more militarism, to more investment in fighting the war, pursuing the war, a securitized response. Or incentives to the war elite. Or incentives to the war elites. Basically, it's a self-sustaining dynamic. When, mm-hmm. you, when you destroy the real economy, there is no potential in the real economy. Where is the potential? Where is the profit? Where is the money? Where is the spending in the war economy? Whether you are pursuing it directly, whether you're playing on the fragmentation of the country where you can smuggle from one place to another, where you can be someone who is able to secure products in between different places and make a profit out of them, that became then an entire new framework that created what we call the conflict economy, which is not necessarily a limited aspect. When we think of the war economy, it has different concepts, right? So traditionally, there's a historic concept that looks at the global North countries, the industrial countries like the United States is having a war economy because they have so much military spending and the economy focuses on spending. Another aspect of the war economy, though, particularly in light of civil wars and civil conflicts, is the illicit smuggling and the exchange of theft of archaeological material and and pillaging and so on. And you see that in Syria as well, of course. But in our approach, we basically looked at the transformations of the entire cycle of production and reproduction of the society and how it was affected by the conflict. And I think this is where you see that full cycle of the regional coming together with the local and the dynamics of the conflict itself. There is a very important issue within the conflict economy that it is the fast way of redistribution of wealth, not just the income or the economic value added. So it is a huge redistribution to the properties, to wealth, not just destroying it. But how this can be explained in terms of the human capital, how those people who used to work in the real economy or productive economy transformed toward uh, an agent or employees within this conflict economy, directly or indirectly? To answer that, we have to think of what were the consequences of militarism that we talked about. So militarism increased the rate of destruction and killing in the society. It increased displacement. It polarized society. So the social movement that may have provided the alternative was split on the axis of militarism. Some of it was opposed and became marginalized and silenced. Some of it was supportive but at the same time was supportive in a passive way in which basically publicly trying to justify that this is the only solution. So there was a polarization of society. But importantly as well, there was the diminishing of the agency of a lot of the population and the rise in power of those who can Mm -hmm. fund and those who fight, basically. Those were the ones that became the de facto powers. If you have the guns and if you have the authority to be able to defeat the enemy, then you are the one who makes the decisions on other factors. And that in turn facilitated the regional agendas. It allowed the social movement, having been emptied from its social and political content and economic content, to become instrumentalized for regional agendas in a way that transformed those who were active in the uprising, many of them, either to go into the humanitarian sector, which was non-political, Right? There was no political vision to delivering aid. And it was needed. I would have done it too. And I did support many initiatives that because of the destruction, it is very needed. But we can say at the very least that it's not a political vision. It's basically to sustain people who need help. So that's where some of that human capital went. Another sense of human capital then became part of justifying or allocating your 
discourse and vision about the Syrian conflict through the lens of the various patrons which develop on the scene, basically. And how this can be seen in the restructuring of private sector? How do you see the new private sector engaged in this conflict economy, the new elite that appeared, and the majority of small and medium enterprises which either dissolved or transformed into survival form? That has many dimensions, of course, but it it has to do with their new elites, right? Not just one elite, but their various elites in the different regions, because there was the fragmentation of the country, as we know. And there was also, given the realities on the ground in terms of the vast amount of needs coupled with the lack of alternatives, given the destruction of the production structure, you saw basically the rise of exclusive monopolies uh, by intermediaries, essentially, who emerged because of their ability to leverage their connections to the holders of power in order to secure basic goods. So it, And of course, they were exclusive producers of those goods. They were exclusive suppliers. And that allowed them to entrench their power and entrench their wealth at the exclusion of a more efficient, rational, competitive way in which the economy should normally function in terms of provision of goods and services. And that's why there was a fight, for example, in Syria with the government in order for its survival, enabling and empowering this conflict elites, but at the same time realizing that it's a social catastrophe to entrench them in power. And therefore, there's some level of institutionalization that was necessary to curb the excesses of these elites. This was a losing battle with time. So the the line was downward sloping, so to speak, in terms of the ability to rein them back because more and more the government was prioritizing pursuit of the war to rational economic policies. But it was needed because there was no control over prices. There was no control over accessibility, of equality of accessibility, coupled with all the destruction that was already happening. It's interesting that you mentioned that the importance of or the huge example of siege in Syria is a representative of this case, which is you deprived people from access to services, water, to electricity, and of course, in addition to the military operations. But also you open this kind of networks under your supervision as a political power that make the smuggling with a lot of rent for these kind of networks which has created a huge burden to the people on both sides. And if we go further in this regard, I want to ask you about an interesting issue that we have a battle that you can see from a military point of view, while you have an exchange of goods and services between the same two rivals. In terms of oil, goods, services, and if we take a look, for example, to the trade relations between Turkey and the Syrian regime, between the Syrian regime, Saudi Arabia, between different groups within the country who are activating the military operations against each other while they have a very close economic relations. How you can see this and how this reflected in the governance of the conflict economy? Yeah, one of the ironies of not just Syrian situation, but actually you see this if you read a lot of the studies on civil conflicts in general is that, and I think it's known from people who experienced the Lebanese civil war, that civil conflicts are never all-out constant wars. 
by all against all. There are periods of ebb and flow of the conflict. There are periods of higher amount of combat and lesser amount of combat. But also there are these territorial fragmentation, territorial divisions, where you have increasingly the entrenched of what is often a violent, unjust elite in various zones of influence. But that given the realities of various countries, and in particular in Syria, where there's an unequal geographic distribution of resources, right? You don't have an equal spread of oil and natural gas in the country. It's concentrated in some aspects of the country. Syria is partly desertic, partly uh, fertile regions, and they're not all equal throughout the country. And actually, for economic survival, you needed exchange between these different regions. It's actually not a shock at all to see that various elites within the country were trading with each other because they had to secure the basic goods and needs because as unjust as they are, they need to try to provide a minimum of social provisions to at least you know, hold back the local anger against their rule. But part of the problem, however, is that these elite compromises, these elite exchanges often come at the expense of the local population. They're not bargains to try and actually open up the space for more social cross-societal dialogue. They can be in the future phase if there's a significant investment in peace. They can be regional cooperation nodes on a popular level or on a regional level that empower a civil society that try to bridge the gaps between Syrian society, but in fact, entrench this polarization. So on the one hand, you had sloganeering, which agitated against the other, dehumanized the other. And that other means everyone in that other region or that other space, right? While at the same time, you had these bargains between the different regions. And in fact, this happened between countries, not just within the country as well. And this continues to happen in some extent. Exactly. While there is reallocation of resources toward military operations, how do you see the replacement role of the civil society, which tried to make serviceable provision as there is a withdrawal from other actors, especially the state and the government and the public authorities, state or non-state de facto powers? How you assess this role of civil society in service provision or support the society? My first and all my constant instinct, of course, as someone who has a personal commitment, as well as an academic and ethical and professional commitment, is to relate to these initiatives with compassion and generosity, that this was a catastrophe. And for example, if you went to Lebanon, I conducted field research, as many people did, on the socioeconomic response to the refugees. You saw many people who had participated in the demonstrations who were then displaced, become active in these kind of initiatives that you're referring to, because they felt they had to do something. And I think that's something that we should never forget, of course. But I think if we look at the big picture, what was the result of this overall, is, as I said, the role of funding fragmented these efforts and changed them from a social movement into you know, NGOization of these different initiatives, where there was competition between them. Everyone had to have a certain brand, a certain title. They were all worried about the same sources of funding and competing with each other. I mean, this is not stuff I'm creating. I mean, it's not a brilliant insight because many people have already talked about this themselves. And many people who were part of these initiatives were aware of this and some tried to overcome them, of course. It depoliticized the social movement because this essentially was in areas that explicitly many times refused to engage in discussing what is the political social alternatives, or if they discussed it from a perspective that, to put it bluntly, was co-opted in depending on the patron who is the benefactor of this, whether it's a state or whatever else it is. Donor-driven agendas, to put it bluntly. But the other part of this is the fact that 
this humanitarianism also relieved and was quite beneficial to the de facto powers because it sustained the cycle of investment in militarism and entrenchment of power. Because if you had the bigger guns or if you had the bigger mobilization, you could rule over territory and also not have to worry about basically provisions of goods and services that can be outsourced. And it's the least efficient, just the last aspect of it, is that I would say the role of civil society can be much more productive in other avenues rather than engaging in service delivery, in actual provision of public goods that requires coordinated effort, even if it's done at the grassroots level, but it requires sustained effort that can perhaps be beyond the capacity of some of those initiatives. I know this is the most challenging question. How the start or how the steps can be shaped, can be formed to counter conflict economies? Where is the starting point from your point of view in this very long run vision strategy for the future? First step is to emanate from an honest reappraisal. And I think, I hope this podcast series, other initiatives that are conducted by the SCPR and other civil society organizations. And I see now a thirst within civil society, within Syrian society, let's say, to actually have an honest reappraisal of this past 10 years and an honest assessment of the balance of power and the constraints currently so that we can start to think of these alternatives. But I think given what to me as someone who was born and raised in Syria, the social movement was one of the biggest inspirations I can imagine, a miracle, let's put it this way, to dramatize the uh, in, in our lifetimes. I still cling to the inspiration and the promise of that, which is basically a promise for an alternative. And I think the role is to first start thinking about what are the policies on every level, national level, economic, social, political policies that can provide an alternative, a vision towards social justice that can speak to the needs and the priorities of serious populations, and then trying to organize, trying to form a critical mass of civil society that can organize in a meaningful way, not simply you know, putting out one statement, but essentially actually engaging with serious populations in their various areas, whether as refugees in neighboring countries. And perhaps this, and hopefully this will happen inside Syria as well, to actually have an alternative that can attract and that can provide the basis of an alternative for Syria. And from that will emanate, of course, certain demands. And these demands can be demands on the de facto powers. It can be demand on international aid donors, for example, about aid and how that aid and how donors use their money. It can be demands on the de facto internal powers. But that has to emanate from a more confident, comprehensive vision of where we want to go as a society. That's great, uh, Omar. Thank you very much for this rich and thorough discussion. And I think there is a lot of ideas and suggestions and statements that we can go through the future to go in depth in terms of research and dialogue. So we thank you very much for that. And I hope that we will have another miracle also made by the Syrian people to transcend this conflict and to go to a better future. Thank you very much. Thank you. You're listening to Syria Alternative Dialogues, a collaborative podcast by the Syrian Center for Policy Research in partnership with the Arab Studies Institute and Security in Context. 